winning feels good, doesn't it? Whether it's uh, the literal victory of your sports team against your foes, or it's some other kind of uh, personal victory uh, with a goal achieved that you set for yourself. Maybe a big work project and getting rewarded by your boss. Or even something as simple as completing uh, a puzzle and putting the last piece in can feel like a major victory. And there's something deeply satisfying about winning, or well, at least if you're me, anyway. The desire to win, to be victorious and successful, is one uh, that can be both helpful but also can plague the human race. And if you were one of Israel's kings back in the time of Isaiah, then as a king, you would have a certain desire for your people that you were leading, in this case God's people, to be a prosperous, safe, strong nation. And if that's your desire as king for your people to be happy and healthy and safe and prosperous, and you're the people of God, you're presented with two options as the leader of God's people, as the king. The first is that you trust God and you do what he says. But sometimes that can feel a bit distant, a bit hard to grasp, and there's lots of present threats that feel more real. And so the second thing you can do is to try and trust in yourself and your own plans and your own understanding of the situation and do things that you think make more sense. And it's not just kings of Israel who are kind of plagued by that choice, is it? All of us find ourselves constantly in life faced with kind of doing what seems like it might be easier or safer or better or trusting the word of God and his promises and choosing a path which looks a little more difficult of faithfulness. The temptation for God's people to trust the nations around them is great. They're a small nation and there are some big nations around them, in particular at the time of Isaiah, the nation of Assyria was tormenting them. And they have chosen time and time again not to trust God, not to do what he says, but to put their trust in political movements, alliances and, the, and their own way of seeing things. And because they've chosen to trust the nations around them in political alliances against the bigger nations instead of God, well, God has sent Isaiah to warn them and to announce to them his judgment for their sin. And we've seen as we've been unpacking the book so far about how God is a God of justice and, and this is the great injustice, isn't it? To ignore God and his rule and his way, to not give him the glory and the honour he deserves and so he, he, God is going to bring his justice to bear. But we've also seen that as he brings his judgement and his justice to bear on God's people, it's, it's not done without hope. Though God will judge his people for their faith, faithlessness, there's going to be this small remnant we saw last week 
who, who will remain, who, who do stay faithful to God, and, and from that stump will come a shoot in the form of a child who we know ultimately to be Jesus, who will bring God's blessings to God's people, in fact, to all the world. And because in the midst of God's judgment there is hope, Isaiah, uh, where we left off last week uh, at the end of chapter 12, was able to finish with a song of praise. Give praise to the Lord, chapter 12, verse 4. Proclaim his name, make known among the nations what he has done, and proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing to the Lord, for he has done glorious things. Let this be known to all the world. Shout aloud and sing for joy, people of Zion, for great is the Holy One of Israel among you. Well, as we move into this next section we see uh, that as God brings about his justice and his judgment, as he provides hope for the people through remaining faithful to him and the good things he's going to do, we see actually part of all this is his victory over sin and his invitation to the people of God to trust in his victory. But before we get that, we get more judgment. And from chapters, 20, uh, from chapters 13 through to 23, we see prophecy after prophecy by Isaiah against the nations around which Israel lives. God isn't concerned only with the sin of Israel. He's actually concerned with the sin of everyone. And so we read... Uh, in chapter 14 of the sin of the Philistines, or in chapters 15 and 16, the Moabites, or in chapter 18, the Ethiopians, in chapters 19 and 20, the Egyptians, in chapter 23, the land of the people of Tyre and Sidon. But before all of that, we see the Babylonians. Now, the reason I went through all those other nations before the Babylonians, who are actually first in the section in chapters 13 and 14, it's because those other nations had something in common with Assyria. They're all the other nations that uh, are facing the threat of the Assyrians, and, and God says they're going to be judged for their failings too. But the first nation that Isaiah prophesies against in that section in chapters 13 and 14 are the Babylonians. And the Babylonians, we know, are the nation that will come after the Assyrians, uh, who will defeat the Assyrians, and who God will actually use to bring judgment on the Assyrians for the, the, the wicked things that they do in bringing his judgment on all these other nations. But they're also going to get judged. And why is that? Well, take a look at chapter 14, verses 13 and 14. Speaking of the attitude of the Babylonians, Isaiah says, You said in your heart, I will ascend to the heavens. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly, on the utmost heights of Mount Zaphon. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. They think that they're like God. They think that they're better than God. And of course, this is the heart of sin, to take God's place, to think you know better than he does. This is effectively the choice, isn't it, 
when you're choosing to trust God or to trust your own understanding of things. It's to say that you are God and you know best. And of course, the Bible very clearly paints that this is the problem that mankind, humankind face ever since the start. Genesis 3, verse 5, the, the, the serpent comes to Eve and whispers, God knows that when you eat from it, that is the tree of knowledge, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Hey, I know God said don't eat this, but why let God rule things when if you ate it, you'd know better? You can be like God, lies the devil. The Babylonians think they're better than God. God's people think they know better than God. We think we know better than God. But of course, we will never be like God and we will never know better than him. And choosing to take God's place never leads to lasting joy, to true peace, or to justice. In fact, in the end, it will only lead to the kind of judgment that Isaiah is warning the nations about. If, if you want to say there's one thing that the Old Testament is about, it's teaching us this lesson. It spells it out in Genesis chapter 3. You, you think you can be like God? Well, you can't. And if you do... It'll go badly for you. You'll be judged. Choose faithfulness to God instead. We must repent of when we try to become like God, of thinking we know better than God, and instead humble ourselves. Trust God. Because it's actually only through trusting in him, putting our hope in him, that we get the security, the justice, the peace and the victory that all of us are so desperately seeking. Of these chapters, a scholar named uh, Dumbrell says, the recurring theme of Isaiah 13 to 23 is that faith in Yahweh or God's purposes and not foreign policies are what will protect God's people. Instead of trying to be like God, we need to trust God alone. And as we know, a lack of faith and trust in God and who he says he is leads to judgment. We've already seen the warnings in Isaiah about that. And that idea continues as the book unfolds. In chapters 24 through 27, we have a move in the prophecies from the specific nations that I mentioned before to the whole world. God is not only concerned with Israel as his people, he's not only concerned with Israel and like the few people they interact with on their borders, he's actually concerned with the whole world world and the sin of the whole world and he's going to deal with that sin these chapters talk to us about how he's going to destroy the earth and all its wickedness 
in order to bring about his perfect rule and reign. Take a look at chapter 24 with me. Verse 1. See, the Lord is going to lay waste the earth and devastate it. He will ruin its face and scatter its inhabited, inhabitants. Then in verse 3, the earth will be completely laid waste and totally plundered. The Lord has spoken this word. Well, that sounds a little depressing. But God doesn't just destroy the earth and walk away. Yes, he brings his judgment, destroying the wicked, but there's a promise to rebuild the earth with righteousness. And in our reading that Claire read to us earlier, we have a, pro prof a prophecy of hope about how having made the city rubble, as we read in verse 2 of Isaiah chapter 25, now he has turned the mountain of Jerusalem, the, the city of God, into a place of feasting where all nations will be able to live with God forever. And so we get in verse 6 of our reading, chapter 25, on this mountain the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. Judgment will come. Evil will be defeated. God's city will be rebuilt. The people will gather and a giant party of perfection will ensure. Ensure. It's a picture, isn't it, of the kind of rejoicing that there will be when there is no more evil in the world. Can you imagine what it's going to be like? What God's victory in all its fullness will be like when death is no more, when sin is completely vanquished? What a wonderful picture that must have been for God's people in that day. And we see that we get access to this party, to this feast, not by pitting ourselves against God or trying to be like God, but, verse 9 of chapter 25, in that day they will say, surely this is our God, we trusted in him and he saved us. This is the Lord we trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. Salvation comes through trust. A feast in the city of God through trust. Participation in the party of heaven where there is no more sin through trust in God. But for everyone else, well, they're represented by Moab in the rest of chapter 25. Remember that Isaiah likes to use a metaphor, and here he speaks of the Moabites metaphorically, I think, for all who now, having seen the city of God be rebuilt, uh, choose not to trust God. 
Moab will be trampled in their land. A straw is trampled down in the manure. They will stretch out their hands in it as swimmers stretch out their hands to swim. God will bring down their pride despite their cleverness of, of, despite the cleverness of their hands. He will bring down their, your high fortified walls and lay them low. He will bring them down to the ground, to the very dust. Failure to trust in God, continual attempts to be like God, to take things in our own strength, lead not to victory, but swimming in manure. I would have had a much better ring if I could have said something else, but I decided against it. That's the picture for us. And these themes are unpacked again as we round out this uh, first section. Remember, uh, 1 to 39 is, 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 is the first part of the book of Isaiah. For in, verses, uh, sorry, in chapters 28 to 35, the focus moves back to God's people and their failure to trust God and again paints the picture of how they turn to the other nations. And then in chapters 36 to 38, we actually get some narrative or some story about how this worked out in practice. We read of King Hezekiah, who uh, is an improvement on the king before him, and he trusts God. The Assyrians come, we read in chapter 36, and as they're getting attacked, in chapter 37, King Hezekiah decides, well, I better trust God. And he repents of his sin and the sin of his people, and he prays to God, and the Assyrians relent. The city is saved. And it would be tempting at this point as you read the book of Isaiah to think, this must be what Isaiah is talking about. Here is a faithful king and, and now the, the enemy's gone away. How good is this? Well, it's good for one whole chapter. For in chapter 39, the good king Hezekiah gets a visit from the Babylonians and decides to try and garner a little favour and trust with them. He shows them everything he owns, all his wealth, thinking that this might mean the Babylonians team up with him to help beat off the Assyrians. And Isaiah hears this is happening and goes and warns that this is a bad idea. And of course we know we don't get it in Isaiah, we just get the exile having happened in, in chapter 40. But in, in 2 Kings 24 and 25, we see, well, the Babylonians proved to be a silly people to trust in. For they roll in and destroy Jerusalem and exile them. Because, why? Their trust didn't last very long. They were back to their old ways. This king, even though he was good for a moment didn't live up to what was needed. Well, Isaiah teaches us that if we want to experience victory and blessing and freedom, if we want to experience uh, a, a shelter from the judgment and fire of God, there's only one way to do it, and it's through trusting God and living out that trust. And obviously, 
what we see in Isaiah is him looking forward, forward to a time where a good king would reign. And it wasn't Hezekiah, but it was Jesus. And Jesus comes and fulfills the prophet Isaiah in ways that are both expected and unexpected. Jesus comes and wins a victory over sin and Satan and provides justice and peace. And as Paul writes about the victory that we share with God when we put our faith and trust in Jesus, he writes these words in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, starting at verse 50. I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the, uh, the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will all be changed. For the, for the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Having spoken of the hope of the resurrection at the start of that chapter, now he talks about the time when Jesus returns, and we are all, uh, through faith in Jesus, made ready to share in this party that Isaiah talks about in Isaiah chapter 25, where we worship God forever, where death is no more, where sin is finally conquered in all its fullness. And so Paul says, therefore, verse 58, stand firm, let nothing move you, always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labour in the Lord is not in vain. I think essentially he says... Therefore, trust God. Live your life according to his word. Always, even if it doesn't seem right or even if it looks like things are going badly because you know what is coming. Jesus Christ has won for us a victory over sin and death. Paul talks about it in this way in Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 to 15. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross." On the cross, Jesus comes and wins the battle. The war is over. The death is defeated. And yet we wait a time for that to be fully realised. What Isaiah didn't know, that we know, is that God brings about his salvation in two parts, if you will. Fully on the cross, but fulfilled in its, all its fullness in Christ's return. 
But the cross is our sign and symbol of God's victory. It's the reason why we continue to trust in God. It's the mechanism by which God's justice is done. It's the promise of death defeated. It's the, uh, it's the uh, answer to Satan's call and he is found wanting. It shows us that sin is paid for. In fact, it pays the price for our sin. And through faith in Jesus, all of us who trust in him will join with God's people when he returns and we feast together on God's holy mountain. So who do you trust to get through your life? Who do you trust to get to the end victorious? When the going gets tough, what is the first thing you do? Do you look to yourself, your resources, your abilities, or do you turn to God? Do you look to Jesus? For it is only Jesus who brings victory. It is only Jesus who defeats death. It is only Jesus who brings justice. It is only Jesus who can deal with the problems of this world and bring us to the perfection we all so desperately desire. So let me encourage you to trust him. Trust him today with all your heart, soul, mind, strength and will. Trust him today with every single part of your being for he has won the victory and he will return to judge the living and the dead and those who he calls who have trusted his name will share in that heavenly banquet forever and ever. Amen. Amen.